Um, again, I was hoping to inflict some Buddhism on you tonight rather than just speak about psychology and emotions and how we translate uh, the meditation teachings into the way we think about ourselves. I think this um, is a crucial task. Sometimes, even though we are quite interested in the teachings of the Buddha and the teachings of uh, introspective practices, it is actually to be quite hard work to um, not just translate these teachings into English language, but actually go a step further and translate them into a language in which we actually think about ourselves. Yeah. It seems that it takes um, a certain time till a culture picks up on, say, the genuine message, not just um, in the language in which it comes to us, or in in kind of a almost literal translation of that language which uh, has been put into English, but actually going a step further and translating it into the language of our generation, into the language of the um, the basic set of references in which we think about ourselves. Yeah? That seems to be a big challenge. Yeah. So we can kind of know that there are five meditation hindrances, that they're called nivarana, and we, we can maybe even know the analogy, but still we it is possible to not connect this teaching with my experience in meditation. It is quite possible to know all this, and yet it stays strangely uh, remote from me actually recognizing these five hindrances in meditation. So it it seems to take some more translating than just translating from Pali into English to be able to connect with this teaching. So this has generally been the job of the oral tradition. And this has generally been a kind of work that happens on the basis of individual curiosity, individual commitment, individual willingness to to kind of rub against the teaching, to metabolize, you know, cognitively and sit with things and uh, marinate in things and, you know, this kind of process, which is usually not straightforward. It seems to take some time. It seems to not be a linear and streamlined process. Um, the Buddhist uh, teaching have their own metaphor for this. Uh, so in the Dhammapada, it says, um, um, somebody can have an association with the teaching like the soup spoon has an association with the soup. You know, it sits in the soup every day, but it doesn't actually taste it. Yeah. <laughs> so it seems that we need to mull over uh, and... Play with these concepts and try to connect them, connect them with the way we think about ourselves and connect them with our individual experiences. And there seems to be a challenge in this because so often, particularly if we are well-meaning and inspired by something that we have respect for, like um, 
we quite willingly say, well, okay, the good bit, this is Buddhism, and <clears throat> then I have all these bits in myself which stop Buddhism from going in here properly. So uh, we antagonize part of our experience or we invalidate it or say, well, this is the bit which basically shouldn't happen. You know, In real practice, all these things would not be here so that then I could practice. You know? In other words, um, I'm in the wrong movie. You know? My first job is to get into the right movie, and for the right movie to start, the wrong movie needs to stop. You know? And suddenly, instead of having helpful tools coming from the Buddhist teaching, helping us to actually relate in a more profound way to our own experience, we have falsified our own experience, this is the stuff which shouldn't happen. If we were decent people, this shouldn't happen. And then we could practice. So we either give up on the practice or we try to get rid of this all this wrong stuff that stops me from practicing. And that happens quite, you know, surreptitiously. I make it sound more grotesque or, you know, I caricature it a bit. But in fact, so often we relate to what is happening for us in a way that basically antagonizes, demonizes, falsifies this as the wrong sort of experience. Now, Buddhism and psychotherapy both agree uh, on this very clearly, that we only really can transform what we have truly experienced. Truly experienced means that we need to understand in our head what's happening. We then need to connect that with what is happening in the body, yeah, with our somatic reality. Nothing is going to change if you have no connection to your somatic reality. Transformation cannot be done in our heads. And then we need to connect it with how that makes us feel. Yeah? We need to connect something we have understood with the somatic reality and with an emotional quality. Yeah? Sometimes... Ideally, these things happen together. Yeah? You have an insight, the insight immediately brings a sense of bodily release, and then you have an affective change. Yeah? That's the textbook situation. The practical situation seems to be a bit more tricky. You know? Sometimes you have an insight, and then 10 years down the road, you get the corresponding physical experience, and then after a little break and a pause and maybe some therapy and a few other things that happen in your life, you connect the dots and come to your emotional comprehension of what has taken place. So, um, this is precious stuff when you feel that something interests you, intrigues you, uh, attracts your interest or makes you curious or you, be, you feel you know, your ears pricking up or you, you sense aliveness. These are generally very good signs. There's something there that concerns you. If you feel tempted to think that you need to get rid of so many things before you seriously can practice... Um, be careful to believe that. Uh, it's a very understandable thought, but be careful to believe that. I, I venture to, to claim that you're in the right movie. Yeah? Whatever you may think of this movie, 
I venture to claim that this is the right movie. Yeah. You don't need to get into another story. You need to make friends with this story. Yeah. That's the task. That's, that is practice. Yeah. Not trying to get rid of the sleepiness before you can practice, but be with the sleepiness. That is the practice at this moment. It will not be always like that. But until you're willing to do that right now, until you're willing to face how your practice is unfolding, until you're willing to take that up, it will not actually transform. It will just, if you manage to push it away, it will just go away and wait till, till you're off guard and then it will come back again. So, but tonight I wanted to say something about the Brahma Viharas or the four Appamanyas, the immeasurables we recite every evening. Yeah? I, you have seen on your sheet, these are very terse, basic meditation instructions, which are called from the, from the Buddha's teaching, straight out of the Pali Canon. And I would like to explain some more about these qualities because <clears throat> they seem still not famous enough in the Western understanding of what Buddhism has to offer. These four Brahma-viharas, <clears throat> let's start with the name. Brahma is a Vedic god, a Vedic deity, which is a creator deity. If you want to establish him, it's generally sort of a masculine uh, deity. It is a deity that is associated with the realm of light. Yeah? It is not your uh, run-of-the-mill um, deity in the Indic pantheon. It's quite a lofty sort of character. So the Buddhists have taken, like they have done with many things of the Vedic tradition, they have uh, taken these um, Vedic gods and said, yeah, they're very important, and then they placed them in a sort of side altar. You know? They also subjected them to impermanence. Yeah, that's one of the things they've done to it. Yeah? They said, well, you're important, but you're also impermanent. Yeah? So in Buddhist cosmology, Brahma is a devata, is a, a, a deity associated with a particular degree of refinement, uh, effusive in light, uh, incredibly uh, endowed with longevity, uh, very attractive, radiant sort of uh, existence. And Brahma Vihara basically means that we abide in the quality of heart we experience in similar vein, like a Brahma God. Yeah? One of the things Brahma Gods do, they are immeasurable in their radiance. Yeah? So our heart when um, truly um, imbued with a Brahma-vihara is immeasurable in its loving-kindness, immeasurable in its compassion, immeasurable in its capacity to be joyous with others, immeasurable in its equanimity. I don't know how it is for you, but for me this holds a certain degree of attractiveness. Yeah? Uh, there are uh, many moments a day and in my life I do... Uh, not experience myself in this kind of unlimited, radiant effusiveness. Yeah? Uh, there are moments I feel other things happening in my life. So this holds a certain degree of attraction. Now Buddhist tradition, particularly earliest Buddhist tradition, has latched on to this teaching 
or one aspect of this teaching and has emphasized particularly the connection between these states of the heart and meditative deepening, meditative stillness. So there is a correlation between the jhanic stillness of mind, the experience of jhanas, and some of the cosmological equivalents in the many tiers of Buddhist devas. So that is one aspect which I'm not going to give much space tonight because that's not the bit that interests me right now. Another aspect of these four Brahma Viharas is that the commentarial tradition of Buddhism has particularly picked up on the recommendation to make meditative exercises out of these Brahma Viharas. So if you read the big commentaries, then uh, you have a lot of encouragement to use these Brahma Viharas as meditative exercises. For obvious reasons, a mind that is capable of loving kindness is a lot more likely to uh, become quiet. These four Brahma Viharas are all credited with... um, being facilitators for deep meditative stillness. As is, obvi- is, is quite obvious, you know, if you have an angry mind or uh, an aggressive, mi- uh, aversive mind or a greedy mind, such a mind is not going to become still, as you will have connected the dots from last night's meditation, meditational obstacles story. Yeah, The mind that is preoccupied with, with the seeking nature seeking stimulation will um, have a kind of centrifugal fugal force. It will move outwards. And this is the opposite of stillness. It is the opposite of uh, quiescence, of being really stable. A mind that is preoccupied with uh, aversion and not wanting things and is equally uh, disquiet. two, three drops of vinegar in your blood and you will not be very peaceful. We all know that. A critical mind is not a peaceful mind. A critical critical mind does not really become very smooth and very still easily. So the tradition has understood the teaching of the Brahma-viharas to be basically meditation instructions. That is true, and I would like to give that some um, um, place. But there are two other aspects of these Brahma-viharas which I feel are all too often forgotten. On the first layer, a Brahma-vihara is, um, these are the perfect states of a human heart. If you expect somebody to be completely awakened and completely free, then you'd expect such a being to radiate loving-kindness, to radiate compassion, to operate from a capacity to be joyous. There, several of your saints may already go down. If they can't be capable of joy and if they can't be kind, uh, I would suspect they're not saints, to be truthful. 
If you meet people who claim sainthood, have a look. You know, obviously you also, you ask things. You know, how are they dealing with money, sex, power? These are always good questions. But also, you know, can they be joyous? Are they kind? Um, are they loving? Can they be equanimous and in relationship? Yeah. It's easy to be equanimous and be in sort of a zero relation state. Yeah. I can be quite equanimous in such a state, insulated and cut off and uh, not in connection. That's quite easy to be equanimous, but being able to be equanimous and in relation now, that is something else. That is a that is a virtue. So these states are what is to be expected of somebody, of a human being, who is, that is completely free. So the, these are the natural expressions of a freed and awakened heart. So that's important to get that clear. Then, on a very different level, at the very other end of the spectrum, these four qualities, metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, are Deep down in our mind, they are available. They are the foundation of what makes us human beings. Maybe they're forgotten. Maybe they're not developed. Maybe they're partially covered over with other things. But they are there. You cannot lose them. That is important to understand. Buddhist psychology, Buddhist teaching starts is predicated on the firm conviction that human beings are capable of love, capable of compassion, capable of joy, and capable of being equanimous and serene in that. Now that is kind of comforting to know you don't have to invent this, or you don't have to kind of um, work this all out in your meditation. Yeah? You don't have to actually kind of cook it up you know you can rest assured that deep down in the blueprint for your mind kind of hardwired into your uh humanity are these qualities available you know and that is very important they're not virtues at that level they're not meditational objects yeah they are on one hand, these Brahma-viharas are boundless, as the word says. The other word for Brahma-vihara, by the way, I think our sheet has, you see, it's called Appamanya, which means immeasurable. It is not limited. Yeah. These qualities are, on, on one level, they are boundless. Yeah. They cannot be limited. On another level, they are universal. Yeah. Although they are part of your build up they are not actually limited in your uh, in how they can be applied and they're there in all beings all beings can be the recipients of these of this state so you couldn't really call them emotion at that level it's more like the four profound modes of expressing universal empathy that's the clincher. The Brahma-viharas are the practice for the human realm. Brahma-viharas are the things that actually hold our relational world together. 
They're all different modes of being in empathetic relationship with other human beings. On a second level, yeah, you have these Brahma-viharas as virtues. They're strictly speaking still not quite emotions, but they are basically things you can experience with some consistency, you can recognize in others, things you can cultivate. That is what makes a virtue a virtue. It is something you can practice. First of all, you can recognize it as, um, as something that happens, both in yourself and in other people. You can say, oh, yes, she's loving, or he's compassionate, or uh, he's joyous, or uh, all kinds of things happen and he stays calm, serene, equanimous. You can notice them. Yeah? That's what you do with virtues. Obviously, you can also be envious about them, but that doesn't generally help. Yeah? If you want to learn something, it helps a lot more if you admire. Yeah? Admiring and being envious is um, often triggered by the same experience. Some of us, when we see goodness and success in other people's life, our first spontaneous reaction is not necessarily joy. It may be envy. So if we are envious of some goodness in somebody else's life, what are we exactly doing? Let's think for a moment. If we're envious of something, then it means we recognize there is something good happening over there, but instead of rejoicing with the goodness in somebody else's life, we identify with the fact that we don't seem to have that. So instead of elevating the other and admiring him or her for this, we kind of we lower ourselves. Yeah? We make a statement of deficiency about our own person. So rather than... Uh, having this kind of ah celebratory feeling for somebody else, we feel down, you know, we feel pressed down or slightly grumbly about ourselves. We identify not with the goodness in his life, but with the deficiency in my life. Yeah? That's what envy does. We kind of we shrivel. Now shriveling is not a very likely starting point for emulating that goodness or for having a share in the success of the other. That's why envious people don't grow really. So, But if you admire, it's a lot easier to emulate what you have come to admire. If you admire it and you say, ah, I recognize the goodness and I would like to resonate with this and you're willing to do that. This goodness is goodness even though I don't have it. Yeah? That makes us a lot more likely that we become part of this goodness so that we have access to it. So, on a second level, these Brahma-viharas are things we can see in people. They are things we can experience in ourselves. And the Buddha's suggestion is affirmation. Yeah. We affirm, yes, it is good to be joyous. Yes, it is good to be uh, compassionate. Yes, it is good to be loving. Yes, it is good to be equanimous impartial. And the Buddha's suggestion is we should cultivate this in our lives, not just in our meditation, but actually in our lives. So do things that 
let us experience these states. Be generous, be helpful, be kind, be friendly, be welcoming. Uh, learn to stay equanimous in the face of change. Not as long as everything is okay, I'm going to be okay with it. But, you know, equanimity is uh, staying in relationship even if things are no longer okay. Yeah? So let's have a quick look at the words. Metta, Maitri, means love. There are many ways, many words for love in Pali and in Sanskrit, and metta is a uh, love that derives etymologically from friendship. Yeah. So it is a profound kind of friendliness. If you want to translate that into a meditative attitude, because metta is something you can have for yourself, for the object you are concerned with, for the process. Yeah? So you can have metta not just with your loved one, but you can have metta with the pain in your knee. That means you can have metta for the pain itself, metta for the knee that has the pain, metta for the leg of which the knee is part of, metta for the mind that is angry with the pain in the knee and feels helpless. You can have metta for all of it. You know? In fact, I would recommend this. You know, have metta for the lot. Yeah. The pain, the afflicted organ, the afflicted mind that struggles with the pain. Um, yeah. This is very, very powerful stuff. Yeah. This is not sort of soft option Buddhism for people who can't have enough samadhi. Yeah. That's what I believed. You know, this kind of you know, this is a soppy Buddhism bit. This is people who are not kind of you know just don't have the sharpness to cut through. Um, it's indispensable. It's not a comfort. It's not a solace. It's not the kind of populist Buddhist bit. You know? Don't buy that. It is the bedrock for growth. It is the bedrock for maturity. It, the bedrock for uh, development. It is the bedrock for anything that is whole and healthy in human minds, in human lives. Unless this is there, you know, you have the mess you have in our health systems currently here in the West. Yeah. Nobody really speaks much about health, you know. Speaking about health is a financial political decision, you know. It is nothing to, stu- to do with human health. When we speak about health politics, we speak about how many, um, how, dist- how do we distribute money for institutions and individuals who cope with pathologies, yeah. We have very little to say about health. Our institutions who are preoccupied with uh, safeguarding our health are preoccupied with the opposite. They're preoccupied with pathologies. We're not very good at this. We have to, this is something we really have to learn, figure out how health functions, how happiness functions, how peace functions. We're not very good at this. We're a lot better at warring and conflicting and we're a lot better at attacking problems rather than figuring out how they don't emerge in the first place, what constitutes homeostasis or health. or you know. There are attempts, but you know you have to understand in Buddhist 
vision of what human beings are capable of. This is indispensable. This is the bedrock. Yeah. The Buddha's um, interest in understanding the dynamic of what he called suffering and how the suffering can be alleviated is to be understood on the background that human beings are intrinsically capable of loving, of being compassionate in their relationships, of resonating in joy, and of being in a sort of quiet and equanimous way still connected with each other. And all the Buddhist techniques make no sense whatsoever unless you're willing to acknowledge this bedrock. As a vision of health, as a vision of growth, as a vision of liberation. So we have these four Brahma-viharas at the very bottom of our mind. Even in the most deluded individual, they are there. Yeah? And you have them as the manifestation, as the lived expression of a human being completely freed from all influences, completely freed from all um, the uh, things that trouble the mind, all constriction. So at both ends of the Buddhist teaching, these Brahma-viharas are right there. So I started off with the first term. Let me go back to the second. The second one is called karuna, or the older, maybe more common word in Pali is anukampa, which means trembling along with. Kampati means to tremble, and anukampa means trembling along with others. So imagine a heart that trembles with others. The capacity to resonate with the pain that happens in somebody else's life. That's probably the most profound connection we can establish to other human beings. Think for a moment. It's, It's easier to relate to somebody else's pain than to relate to somebody else's joy. If you want to relate to somebody else's joy, generally you need to be closer to this person. Yeah? You can be joyous with people whom you love, you feel close to, connected with. But you can relate to other people's pain yeah? very directly, without knowing them, without sharing their religion or their ethnicity, their language. Yeah? It seems easier for us somehow to be in touch with the pain in others because that pain reminds us of our own pain or in meeting our own pain we recognize the precariousness of that of what's happening in other people's lives yeah so this is people have recognized it's not just buddhists yeah? schopenhauer has without knowing this from the buddhists uh, written uh, a paper he was trying to hope. He was hoping to get some honors from the Danish uh, Academy, uh, the Danish Royal Academy, and he started developing um, a teaching on ethics on the basis of compassion. He didn't get the honors because he couldn't refrain from having a few goes, a few acrimonious goes at a guy he didn't like in his time, and the Royal Danish Academy didn't really honor that. But the teaching, the actual concept was very, very touching, you know. He quite clearly, without any undue Buddhist influence on the matter, he quite clearly acknowledged that we have a profound connection to others 
if we meet them in pain. Yeah. You know, whether you have that saying in English, the French say that, uh, uh, les mêmes souffrances unissent mille fois que les mêmes joyances. The uh, same su the shared suffering uh, bonds us a thousand times more than shared happiness. Yeah. I'm sure there is something equivalent to that. If I knew my Shakespeare well enough, I would probably remember, but you probably will recognize it somehow. So there is an acknowledgement, not just in Buddhist teaching about this, that we are connected to others most profoundly in meeting their suffering. You see, the basic punchline of these four Brahma-viharas is that we are connected. Yeah. The basic statement of these four Brahma-viharas is, if you want to state that in psychological terms, it means that we are not separate. As simple as that. Or, there is no happiness for me without you being happy. Yeah. You being part of my happiness. And in turn, uh, when I am with you in this, and then your pain and your joy is with me as well. Yeah. So, the first one is a fundamental gesture of interest, of welcome, welcoming of acceptance, of going toward, of being available. You know, if you wanted to translate these Brahma-viharas into meditative attitudes, then the first one is the attitude of actually receiving. Yeah? That's what we do when we feel the breath, when we welcome the breath, when we connect with our uh, state, the body's uh, experiences. That's what we do when we receive, when we're doing the Tai Chi. You know, we have countless gestures of receiving. That's when we let somebody touch us. We give our attention. We inquire after his or her health. We resonate with them. Yeah? The second one, Karuna Anukampa, this trembling. The good word, actually, yeah, I think compassion is pretty good. It means I, I'm suffering with you. In Buddhist teaching, this is not a passive, receptive quality. It is an active quality. You know? Tibetan tradition, the Bodhisattva of compassion, Avalokiteshvara, has a, you know, he's not just got a lotus plant in his, in his hands and uh, the mala beads. He's also got, you know, bow and arrow and uh, hatchet. And, you know, he's a pretty active sort of guy. You know, grammatically at least, he's also male. Yeah, in the iconography, mostly male. There's a Chinese version which is female. Yeah, Quan Yin, here she is. Yeah, and you see in her tiara, she's got Amitabha Buddha. So she's got a the Bodhisattva of compassion. Um, listens to the sounds of the worlds. So that's one of the translations or for one of its epithets. Uh, there's a big difference. He, he or she listens to the sounds of the world. He, she or she doesn't necessarily believe the sound of the world. You know, notice there's a subtle difference there. The capacity to listen and the capacity to believe are not the same. You, know? you can listen to things without believing them. And it behoves a meditator to make this distinction. You, know? you want to listen to what's going on in your mind. You don't want to believe everything. You know? So, you will understand that these qualities of love, of compassion, and the next one, um, 
that's the resonance with the joyous aspect in somebody else, these form both um, a quality in my relational life with other human beings and they also form a relation in how I am with my own experience. Yeah? So they work inwards and outwards. They're connected. Yeah? As I am connected with other beings, obviously <laughs> the workings of these qualities inwards and outwards are connected. Yeah? Psychologically, this is very easy. If I'm afraid of my own pain, I, I will not like it if you have pain. I will be helpless if you have pain. If I have not met my grief, I will be not very good with your own grief. Yeah? If I'm not capable of being attentive to what's happening with my body, I am very unlikely to be particularly attentive, at, attentive to what's happening with your bodies. Yeah? So the quality of my own or the capacity of awareness, mindfulness, attunement I have for myself has something to do with the quality of attunement and mindfulness I have for other people. This is very easily understood. So they work inwards and outwards, these four uh, Brahma-viharas. Let us have a look at the, the third and the fourth. The third one is called mudita, the verb for it comes means modati means to, to rejoice, to be joyous. Yeah. And it is similar to the second one about compassion. It is the capacity to resonate with that which is successful, that which is good, that which is joyous in somebody else's life. Yeah. The English construction for this word is kind of sympathetic joy, and I never quite made peace with that. <laughs> Expression. I don't know what it does to you. It sounds slightly contrived, but um, also because the word sympathy seems to think seems to mean that um, I actually need to like somebody to be able to do that with him. But the Buddhist quality doesn't presuppose liking, you know, because liking and not liking are two something. They are operating on a different scale. <laughs> yeah. You see, you can have compassion, for example, with people whom you don't like. It's quite possible to not like somebody and still be compassionate with them. Yeah? <laughs> the same, ideally, is true for the quality of mudita, yeah? your capacity to participate in their happiness and in their success doesn't strictly uh, depend on, you liked, on your, your liking them. Yeah? Now, if we translate that into, say, an atti a meditative attitude, uh, compassion means I'm getting in touch with that which is painful. Yeah. I'm not going in to fix it. You know, I'm not going to play a hero. I'm not denying it, rationalizing it, talking them out of it, you know, distracting them. I'm not comforting. You know, I'm not fixing it. I am willing to be affected by it. If you want to translate that into... A, an activity, then it means you, you make a space here in your heart, in your chest. You make a space, you open that space and you let somebody come in there. And you allow them some space in there and you allow yourself to feel what they bring in there. Yeah? You allow yourself to tremble with whatever it is that hurts them. That is what compassion as a relational quality seems to be doing. That's not the end of it. 
it's not about just feeling uh, this pain. It's about alleviating uh, this pain, uh, averting uh, this pain. If you cannot alleviate or avert, you can at least comfort them. If you cannot comfort, then you at least cannot leave them alone with it. Yeah. So the Buddha or the Bodhisattva of compassion uh, is an active symbol. It is speaking of compassionate activity. You know, not feeling tremendously concerned and helpless in resonating with others' suffering and other helplessness. You know, It's not just a kind of resonance body for pain. It is the profound <laughs> wish to alleviate that pain, to do something about it. Some of you may be having a Catholic background and um, traditionally Mother Mary has done that job Uh, the Buddhist notion of compassion is a bit different because um, it is generally the force that helps and not just comforts or bears but actually goes out and does actively minimize or alleviate the suffering of others. Yeah. So it's not just the gentle but helpless, the soft but basically inactive uh, receiving part. So if you have theologians in here, forgive me, maybe this is a bit crude, but I have always felt that this is lacking in Mother Mary. Yeah. Yeah. She's very good at bearing things and hanging in there, but very little sort of going out and uh, saving sentient beings, as we expect uh, Kuan Yin to be doing, or uh, Bodhisattva Olokiteshvara. <laughs> well, they do, they, they do that through the application of skill in means. Yeah. They, first of all, they do listen. That's one of the things they do, yeah. Because one of the thing, one of the worst things that can happen to us if we don't matter, if what we experience doesn't matter, yeah. that's a very profound experience, moment of helplessness. If what afflicts us is not being heard, is not being picked up, if we and we we take that profoundly in a sort of devastating way, personal. Yeah, if what happens to us remains unheard. Uh, we are profoundly invalidated by this. Yeah. Okay. Sorry if I did not do her justice. Maybe I, I have missed out on some... So on, uh, good, I'm glad you're stepping up here. And <laughs> so, redeeming Mother Mary. I'll go back to my books on... <laughs> yeah, I I noticed a sort of hopping from the iconography <laughs> to the personification with a mother figure, and from Mother Mary to Mother Teresa. So we we seem to kind of move slightly outward from the, the quality. But thank you for uh, you know taking up the um, the defense of Mother Mary. Let me go back to 
the capacity to resonate with joy. Yeah? That is one way we participate in other people's lives. We participate. Yeah? You know, as much of our life is about connecting. Even if you think of yourself as an independent, autonomous human being, actually you are not independent. Yeah? And you are also not autonomous. We all, however autonomous you believe yourself to be, we depend. Historically we depend, developmentally we depend. We learn through relating to others to know ourselves better. We discover ourselves in relationship to others. If you look at actually what we do, developmental psychology has some clear ideas about is that we actually very, very much preoccupied with relating, establishing bonds, establishing links, establishing reliable, attuned, valid, uh, kind of consistent relationships are, is a crucial uh, interest in our development. Obviously, we like to be fed and closed and, you know, this kind of thing as well, but that alone doesn't do the job. It's very clear. So these Brahma-viharas are states of universal empathy, are qualities of the heart, inbuilt qualities. Then there are virtues which we can affirm, which we can strengthen, which we can develop, which we can encourage others to, to dwell in, which we can find out what brings them about. And as I hope to uh, tell you, which have enemies, which we can identify. The last one of these Brahma-viharas is called Upeka, or Upeksha, which means uh, the word underneath it is a, a verb saying something like looking across. Yeah. It implies both impartiality, sort of an equal looking, and also things are being decked out in front of me. I can see all of it. I have a perspective. Tradition speaks of these four Brahma-viharas in four analogies using mother. Yeah? <laughs> mother images. Yeah. The first one for Meta is a mother uh, rejoicing in her newborn baby. Yeah? She's happy. She is completely focused on this child. She is very much there. And she is in a sort of blissful connection with it. Yeah. Highly attentive, completely attuned to its needs, its noises, its uh, how it manifests. Yeah, Completely available. That, I think, is the crucial element. Yeah? The second image, that of compassion, is the concern and the activity of a mother whose child has fallen ill. Yeah? She does everything to make that child healthy again. That may mean she is there, that may mean she procures medicine, that may mean she uh, organizes expertise, that may mean she sacrifices her sleep, that may mean she's a mixture of smart and patient and caring and, you know, maybe even strict for some things. If the child is not supposed to eat or, yeah. So she does everything to alleviate the suffering of a child, whatever that everything may practically entail. But again, the focus is very clear, establishing a painless 
state for this child, establishing the well-being of this child again. The third image from Mudita is the image of a mother rejoicing in the successes of her growing child. Knows how to tie shoelaces, goes to school, brings home the first good notes, grows up, this kind of thing. Successes, the, um, what's the word, epanouissement, the kind of expansion, the uh, basically well, is kind of flourishing. Yeah, that's the word. Yeah, the flourishing of a kid. That joyous uh, mixed with pride and with uh, a sort of validating, uh, affirming quality and being touched by what makes the child happy. Yeah. Not just a kind of grunting, well done, yeah, I wouldn't have wished you did any other, yeah, all that kind of things. But really being capable of resonating with the joy. Some people can't do that. I'm sure you know people who can never praise or who can never be really (coughs) sort of unflinchingly giving or unflinchingly good-natured. Some people just say kind of, even if the best of all eventualities happen, they kind of say, "Mm." Well, I was the, that was the least that could happen, yeah, really. Yeah. People who can never ever thank you, for example, or you know, you know such people. So, being able to pick up on somebody's success or happiness or just fortune is a capacity. Yeah, that's the mother who rejoices with the successes and the fortune of a child. The fourth one is. <clears throat> The tricky one, it is a mother who senses her grown-up children need to be let go of. Now the mother knows a lot of things better than the child does because the child is just, you know, adolescent. At the same time, the mother knows she can't make the decision for the child, even though she would probably make better decisions. Uh, At least that's what the mother will definitely believe. She knows she has to trust that what the child has learned from her is active, even though she doesn't make the decision. So she's right up there, wishing well for the child, hoping the child would be wise and uh, astute, and yet at the same time knowing very clearly that she cannot interfere. She needs to be there as a backup, but she needs to let the child make its own experiences. So that's the equanimous bit. Equanimity is a relational aspect. This is important to understand. It doesn't mean I don't bother anymore. You know, nothing can happen that really throws me off. That's not equanimity. That is its near enemy called indifference. Equanimity is probably one of the most misunderstood um, teachings in Buddhism. It is crucial that you understand this is still me being in relationship to something. It doesn't mean I am isolated and because I am isolated nothing bad can happen to my stillness anymore. That's sometimes what meditators would like to do. They like to go someplace where nothing can hurt them. And they like to stay there as long as possible. 
and go there at will and stay there at, at will as long as they would like. This is perfectly understandable. This may even be a very useful uh, trick, but it doesn't really help you grow very much. It's a sort of, it's a, a kind of a type of palliative care meditation. Yeah? You don't understand when you're not in relationship. You don't truly transform if you have just learned to distance thing. I think I've made that clear. Yeah. It's a very interesting image that we can only truly transform what we are willing to actually have as experience. Yeah. We cannot transform things that we have not arrived at. Yeah. The very first noble truth asks us to be in touch with suffering. It doesn't ask us to avoid suffering at all cost. The way to transform suffering and to transcend suffering is not to avoid it at all cost. It is to understand it. Unmistakable in Buddhist language. Right there in one of the first sermons of the Buddha, he says, you know, this noble truth of suffering is to be understood. That's a very profound statement and psychotherapists will take heart in this because uh, obviously meeting suffering is the place where we grow. Buddhists would be quite happy for people to grow if they're not suffering. There's nothing in Buddhist teaching which says we couldn't learn from happiness or bliss or so. But the practical experience unfortunately seems to teach me that basically when people are not having a relationship to suffering. They don't really have much motivation to learn. Yeah. So the pressure of suffering is obviously one of the things that most encourages us to learn, to grow. Yeah. If everything is fine, <laughs> why should I change? You know, why should, why should I try to wake up? I get what I want. Things are fine. So where is the problem? So it seems to be that we need... Um, a certain degree of urgency that comes from meeting suffering. And the, the radical step, and that's where Buddhist teaching is totally counterintuitive, uh, it suggests that when we meet suffering, rather than turn away and hope it stops or try to repress or deny or, or distract ourselves from the suffering, Buddhist teaching suggests squarely we meet suffering. You know, not head-on like you would um, in a complete collision, but we relate to it and we are willing to actually understand it. So, Upeka is being in connection and yet acknowledging that there are things that are not in our power. I have power to do things, but I don't have the power to change even tide, or I don't have... Uh, the power to reverse the flow of rivers. I, you know, I. Well, I can affect a few things. I, and I can, you know, put my chips on, 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 on hedge my bets wisely and so forth. I, my powers are quite limited. Yeah. So, Upeka acknowledges that I can befriend you, that I can support you, that I can connect you, I can hold you, I can counsel you, but I can't fix your life for you. 
It acknowledges that there are conditions that are beyond my direct influence. And still, it wishes you well. It's still, it is staying within relationship. So, what are the enemies of these four Brahma-viharas? There are two enemies for each of the Brahma-viharas. One enemy is the near enemy. The near enemy is described as the guy who lurks right in front of your house. And while you still feel in safety, you do one step out of your house and he launches at you and catches you. So the near enemy of each of these Brahma-viharas has a striking similarity to the Brahma-vihara itself. The first Brahma-vihara of loving-kindness, of profound friendliness, has as a direct near enemy greed. Friendliness and uh, loving-kindness sees the good in something. Greed also sees the good in something, but with a slightly different motivation. The ant scientist and the ant eater have both an interest in ants, but their interest is slightly different. Yeah? The ant eater wants to eat the ants, and he's very interested in the ants because uh, he likes to eat them. Yeah? And the person trying to study ants has also an interest in ants, but he is not interested in eating them, I, I would hope. Yeah? Yeah. So, but you understand, greed has an interest in seeing advantages of things. And loving kindness has an interest in seeing the good of things. So both of these things are, both of these attitudes are capable of recognizing the goodness in something, but with differing motives. The direct enemy of loving kindness is um, ill will or. <clears throat> Uh, the actual word is resistance, yeah, patika, kind of. It's not not wishing well. This is very clear. By the way, the, the distant enemy, the far enemy, is like the enemy that waits for you in the distant mountains. And when you're far away from home, he kind of attacks you and uh, plays highwayman. So the far enemy is generally the opposite of the quality. In this case, um, the opposite of loving kindness, the opposite of well-wishing is um, not wishing you well. Holding a grudge. I'm not going to help. I don't care. To hell with her. So this is the the direct opposing enemy. Sometimes we learn more about these uh, Brahma-viharas by looking at their enemies. The near enemy of karuna, of compassion, is... um, What would that be in English? It is consternation. It is being... resonating with the pain, but being at loss. We cannot help. It is as if we fall into the same puddle. Yeah? We get lost in the same hole as the person we wanted to help or we or called for our help. We feel the emotional impact 
of the pain, but we lose our own ground to act. We lose our own capacity to help. We resonate emotionally, but we actually can't help. You know? We just uh, we commiserate, but we don't help. We don't console, we don't act. That's probably the most crucial bit. We lose the capacity to act, to alleviate suffering or to comfort or to um, ameliorate the conditions. We just join it. Yeah? We become part of the misery. The far enemy of compassion is cruelty. Now, you may not think of yourself as particularly cruel, but uh, let me assure you, we are more cruel than we like to admit. Yeah? While public and organized cruelty has basically uh, has lessened in our days, sort of private and intimate cruelty hasn't really lessened. So sometimes we are cruel not just by things we do, but also by things we don't do. I forgot there is a juridical term for uh, you have acts of commission and acts of or si- omission. Yeah. So yeah. sometimes our cruelty consists in not acting. Somebody comes and wants to apologize, and we just say, "Well, later." Yeah, I, I let you simmer a little long, a little longer with your guilt and your remorse, and I just I'm sorry. Yeah, or we're particularly frosty, or we overtly so, or we just don't respond with our look, or we don't let somebody in. Sometimes we actively engender suffering for others. Yeah, we let them run into a problem that we could easily avert for them. Or we, we let them face their own horrors, yeah? Helplessness or darkness or rejection or whatever. If you know them well, they gen- you generally know their horrors. And you, you kind of engender it so that their horrors become um, alive for them somehow. And you let them in there for a little longer than need be. So sometimes we're more cruel than, than we would like to admit. For me, it has taken a long time to figure out that the most horrible things you can do to human beings is not to abuse them. I always thought that this is the worst thing you can do to human beings. You kind of abuse them emotionally, psychologically, physically, sexually. And this is really a bad thing to do, and it's really horrible. But there are things that seem even worse than that I've come to acknowledge. Namely, if you strategically do not care, yeah? particularly for people who depend on you for one or the other reason, either because they're small or because of a situation. So not strategic, not caring, where you are needed, seems to be the most cruel thing we can do. That which leaves human beings probably weakest, and if you look at it psychologically, leaves them with the greatest degree of damage or the greatest... um, deficiencies, things which are most difficult to uh, compensate for or grow out of. So um, there is much to be said for a cruelty that doesn't really respond, that doesn't care, that doesn't honor the relationship we're in. Sometimes the cruelty doesn't seem to come mostly from the people who actively pursue 
our unhappiness or our suffering, but it seems to come from the bystanders who exactly see what's going on, but who collude with the perpetrators by not naming or by not owning up or by not helping or by not going public. You know? Sometimes, um, you know, a perpetrator uh, could be easily handled and managed and stopped from doing what he or she does if there weren't a few guilty bystanders around who keep silence or kind of keep loyal or believe they're doing some higher good uh, a favor by basically letting it happen without interfering. Uh, So cruelty can have many faces. Be, Be wary if we speak of cruelty don't too easily dismiss the possibility that you too could be cruel. The near enemy of mudita, of our capacity to be joyous with others, is it's a sort of party spirit. It is the wish to be just joining the feast, you know, joining the party and having a good time. Something's going on somewhere, and I'll just, I'll just, uh, I'll just join up, yeah. Just for this, for the fun of it. I'm not particularly concerned. I'm not connected, but I want to have a good time as well. Yeah, people are happy. People are dancing. There is music. Obviously, they seem to get something to drink there. Let's just go there as well. Yeah, this kind of spirit. The um, the the Pali term for it suggests a a pleasure-seeking village attitude. That's the word, yeah? In Thai language, you have two kinds of friends. One are the friends you eat with, the Puen Kin, and you have the friends who are there when you die, the Puen Thai, and these are not the same sort of friends. It is acknowledged that there are many people around to be your friend if you have something to eat. Yeah, and there are fewer people around if it comes to die. Yeah. So, um, eating and party, obviously, <coughs> it's easy to have friends for. So, the seeking of pleasure is, in many ways, the direct enemy of the capacity to resonate profoundly with joy of what's happening good in other people's lives. Yeah. Again, the similarity seems on, at the first glance obvious. They seem kind of, well, you have a party, I have a party, I'm part of your party, we both have a party. Yeah? And yet, uh, there is something that is self-serving in this. Yeah? And in some way, this stops us from experiencing the profound resonance with that which is joyous in other people's lives. Uh, the far enemy of Mudita is one of Mara's daughter. You remember Mara is the uh, the evil one. Mara is the embodiment of all things that stops human beings from being free. Uh, in particular, uh, he has a, a large family. He has several sons and several daughters, and one of their one of his daughters is a thirst, is desire, and the second of his daughter is our um, um, is our person here. She's called Arati, and she means displeasure. She means she is 
um, sullen. She is discontent. Uh, and, you know, who hasn't flirted with Mara's second daughter, to be honest? You know, I certainly have flirted a lot with Mara's second daughter. So the direct enemy of, so the remote enemy of my capacity to be joyous is a kind of lingering, smoldering, grumbling, acerbic, astringent sort of discontent. Um, resentment is more the opposite of metta. It's a grudge, resentment. Uh, Resentment is generally specific. You resent some specific situation or an activity towards somebody. But arati is non-specific. She just doesn't give any smiles before 10 o'clock in the morning. She's just, just, you know... um, she cannot be won over, you know. She is, you know, basically, there's a sourness. Uh, yeah. You will know what I speak of if you're familiar with her. If you have walked in her arm or have had her walk on your arm, then you, you will know what I talk of. It is a something that cannot be attributed to a particular incident or to a particular person. It's just basically... You don't want to be happy. It is a, you have invested in discontent. You know. Our near enemy of equanimity, serenity, is the indifference. It is a certain degree of numbness. Again, the similarity between the two is very, very obvious. You know, equanimity is calm. And non-reactiveness and indifference is also calm and non-reactive. You know? But indifference refutes the relational quality of your uh, situation. It says, I don't care. You don't matter. It is of no importance to me what is happening to you. I am calm because I don't care. It's very similar I, upon a closer look, very, very different, yeah? because it fundamentally contravenes the basic premise of these Brahma Viharas, namely that I am not separate from you, namely that me being here and you being here establishes a connection between us. Indifference is is hard. It's a hard number because, you know, we have only so much capacity. We have only so much heart. We have. Maybe we find it difficult to be compassionate with the bits we don't like in ourselves. And it will be even worse to be compassionate with the bits we don't like in ourselves if we meet those bits in other people. How should I be patient with your stupidity if I can't stand my own stupidity? Well, you will breathe into it for a while and you figure out that your own impatience with other people's stupidity has something to do with not accepting your own (laughs) stupidity, (laughs) you know. Uh, The direct uh, remote enemy of uh, the fourth of these Brahma-viharas, we have already met. It is the one, it's a double one. It is both the greed we know from the enmity of uh, metta from loving kindness, and it is 
the um, the ill will or the the, the grumbliness, the, the the grudge from the second of the Brahma Viharas from compassion. So the direct and the remote enemies of our equanimity is both greed and as a second part it has grudge or disgruntlement or uh, this kind of negative rejecting quality in us. So give these um, Brahma Viharas a thought or two and consider their um, near and far enemies and the honest question would be not whether uh, you may occasionally be afflicted by these but the honest question would be where you are afflicted by these Yeah. assume that if these Brahma Viharas are not fully completely <coughs> developed in your own heart it is very likely that you encounter some of the enemies both near and far Yeah. and uh, this is uh, maybe interesting um, counterpoint to some of what we have spoken of in our meditative experience. These are the four qualities of heart that the Buddha would recommend we acknowledge at the deepest level, that at the second level we develop, we affirm, we admire, we find out what helps us bring them about and uh, maintain them in our uh, experience. And at the third level, we may take these up as meditative exercises by, say, practicing metta, of which we have done very little, um, or by practicing specific exercises for bringing about compassion in our lives as a meditative exercise. Yeah. All of these Brahma-viharas have a profound influence in our relationship. They have a profound influence in our meditative relationship to our experience. And obviously they have a profound influence in the capacity of the mind to achieve stillness. Yeah. Good. Can I stop here and see whether I can respond to questions? or? Please, stand. Boundary, what you mean? Well, metta doesn't mean you become stupid or inactive or, you know, just because you practice metta, they can do everything with you. you It still may mean, it may mean that you have to actually set boundaries, you know, out of metta. That doesn't mean that you allow everything. It means you make yourself available, you find out what's happening, but if somebody is abusive to you, then this is not the, this is not the moment to practice metta. You, know? you may, uh, out of metta, actually need <laughs> to state very clearly that this is not correct. You, know? you do not help this person by creating bad karma abusing you or others, you see? Um, I didn't... Yes, definitely. All of these, all of these start with yourself. Yeah. And sometimes we don't do this on this retreat, but sometimes I recite the uh, four wishes um, for 
That's the simplest way to bring about these qualities, to actively wish them, formulate them as a wish. And that wish always starts with oneself. May I be well, may I be happy, may I be free from suffering. Not be parted from my joy. Uh, and then a contemplation on fruit and action, consequence and activity. Yes, definitely. As a meditator, I would, in fact, encourage all of you to practice this. And particularly if you have states of affliction, particularly if you have to struggle with impatience, with pain. Very effective ways of responding to things that you cannot change. Um, particularly metta practice. Yes, please, Gary. The meditative attitude <coughs> for mudita is you uh, <coughs> gently resonate with that which is joyous. Yeah, so you kind of try to pick up on the vibe <coughs> of joyousness, uh, sort of celebratory, celebratory um, quality. Um, I spoke of people who cannot do this, as uh, maybe I should have emphasized the capacity to actually praise, to acknowledge, to uh, uh, be encouraging, yeah, would be psychological expressions of this. Meditative attitude would be if you kind of resonate with the goodness of something. Um, if you would say that to a human being, you would say something like, uh, I delight in your being. How wonderful are you? Uh, I'm honored to be in your presence. Or, you know, something like that, this kind of attitude. Yeah. Um, that can be more quiet, grateful, or it can be more jubilant. Yeah. And the equivalent of this in your meditation would be uh, feelings of amazement, tat, um, um, awe, uh, gratitude, um, this kind of climate um, would be expressions of mudita, your practice. Sometimes you can uh, translate these four Brahma-viharas very simply in kind of exclamations. You know, the first exclamations is how uh, you, the profound wish, may all beings be happy. Yeah? The second exclamation would be something like, how unhappy human beings are. Yeah? The, the third exclamation would be, how delightful human beings. Yeah? And the fourth one would be something like, yeah, human beings or just human beings. <laughs> yeah. Please. Last week I have understood Joy a little bit different. Um, as Kirsten said, she was emphasizing more awakening the joy in myself by, for example, generosity or not being joyful this, but creating. Yeah. Well, that is another version of it. That's not strictly a Brahma-vihara, but you see you have in meditation teachings, particularly in the Anapanasati Sutta, you have actually a stage which is called uh, 
Abhipamodanangchitang, um, so gladdening the mind. You learn how to make the mind glad. Yeah? Um, so that is a skill. We generally know quite well how to make the mind miserable. So uh, one of my teachers used to say, if I want to feel miserable and depressed, all I do is I think about myself. You know, I just kind of think I, I, I. And if I follow those thoughts long enough, generally a couple of minutes, I feel miserable and depressed quite quickly. So we know how to make ourselves feel miserable, but we often don't really know how to make ourselves feel glad. Yeah? And I think uh, you may refer to this skill, actually, in uplifting the mind and connecting, uh, for example, either with generosity you have lived or you have practiced, or uh, recollecting uh, virtues you have cultivated or you have maybe even uh, realized. So you bring about the things you have done good and that makes the mind happy. That's one of the ways of making the mind happy. Um, These things are obviously not mutually exclusive. They're a shift in emphasis of the same, of a teaching that has many facets. Yeah, Yeah. Please. Cruelty. Cruelty. Yeah. Um, is it? It's a bit of a ridiculous question, but uh, the, I mean, there are so many, so many instances in, in everyday life where you could be perceived as, uh, or you could perceive yourself as behaving cruelly towards somebody by not acknowledging uh, their suffering by walking past something that you that you perhaps could stop and check if somebody's okay or. Just Let's speak clearly. We are not speaking of how you may be perceived. We're speaking of intention. Okay. Cruelty is the intention to engender the suffering in another human being. Yeah. Now, the, the, the hallmark of whether you are practicing cruelty or not would be having a firm and clarified and distilled intention to engender suffering in other people's lives. <laughs> You may quite you may create quite a lot of pain in other people's life without having this intention, yeah? So that doesn't make you a cruel person. It just makes you maybe a person who is not mindful or who has who has slipped or has missed out on something. It may be that some bad things happen without you having any bad intentions or without yeah. So not all the hurts and injuries and slights uh, people around you may experience involving your person will be due to your direct uh, malevolent intention. Yeah. So uh, let's not make that into a guilt trip because obviously things go wrong in between human people, even between well-meaning human beings. Yeah. The telltale sign is very clearly the the intention to harm. And to, in fact, cruelty would be to enjoy the harm other people experience, 
either engendered by yourself or you know engendered by some something else but your affirmation that it is okay to enjoy when they suffer yeah good yeah that's a hand there Like what? <laughs> well, I suppose um, you talk about the intention being there to, 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 to harm in some way, and yet one can harm without necessarily having a clear intention. Yeah. You could just ignore the fact that somebody needs your help. Well, we're speaking of the pleasure you derive from the suffering of another. Yeah, you can be just careless or you know preoccupied with something else, and something bad happens. That that wouldn't be cruelty. Ah, uh, <laughs> deliberately. Well, it may be just callousness. This may be just callousness rather than cruelty. Yeah. I mean, you would need to have some kind of calculated hope for getting pleasure out of this, you know, for it to be counting as cruelty. So where does callousness fit into? Well, it fits into lack, lack of acknowledgement of a relationship or lack of care or... But it doesn't need to be cruel, you know. Is that indifference? Yeah, more. I mean, you have more emotions than these four, or these, these eight enemies, you know, just to be clear, yeah. There are things not in there, say, you know, shame or uh, uh, jealousy or <laughs> this kind of thing, yeah. This is not an account of emotionality from Buddhist psychology. These are you know, the specific enemies of those four Brahma-viharas. Yeah. So don't try to construe out of this a complete picture of human emotional life. Yeah. It's not. I do think to qualify as cruelty, you need to have some anticipated and then actually enacted pleasure out of somebody else's suffering. Either because you have enacted that and they, you know, something as painful has happened for them, and you enjoy their suffering, or you yourself have engineered it so that they suffer, and you then, uh, you know, rub your hands and say, "Well, see, <laughs> yeah." So this is being callous or being careless or being uh, in it, uh, inattentive doesn't doesn't really count. Yeah, does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, we, we need another retreat for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I hear the wish, but please understand, I cannot go on much longer. Yeah. Good, Penny.
What do you pick up? Right. Acknowledging conditionality. Yeah? There are things I can affect, there are things I can do, and there are things that are not in my doing. Yeah? While I can try, I have no guarantee that I can affect them. If you press me on meditative attitudes, it means uh, being patient. It means being willing to acknowledge that even despite my best efforts, even despite my best attempts to bring something about, I may be obstructed. You know, there may be obstructions that have to do with my psychological history. There may be obstructions that have to do with my karmic history. This thing is bigger than I may, that I may possibly understand right now. Yeah. And in the view of that, I am asked to be hovering, yeah, to be patient, to keep trying, to try to understand more deeply, to seek for help, to look for practical, uh, skillful means, yeah, but also to rest somehow that things, even though they may not be as I like them, have in some way their rightness, yeah. That they have, that they are the product of conditions, and um, that they depend on circumstances that I may know not, I may not completely understand, or I may not completely see. Yeah. And the willingness to be holding that relationship, even though I can't stir it, or I, I, I can't fix it, or I, I. It's beyond what I can affect. Yeah. See? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.